0: Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which Yahweh inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. From on high He sent fire. Into my bones He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand they were fastened together they were set upon my neck he caused my strength to fail the lord gave me into the hands of those whom i cannot withstand the lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst he summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men the lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. Yahweh has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes, Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Yahweh is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Yahweh, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it's like death. They heard my groaning, yet there's no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you've done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, many, and my heart is faint. You can be seated as we pray, Father. We hear this in your word. And it stirs all sorts of different things in our hearts and in our minds. But it certainly alerts us to the fact that we need an outside voice. A voice that can help speak into our own hearts and minds which are prone to error, prone to wrong thinking. We need to think like you. So use a provocative voice book-like lamentations, passage like this, to shape us to think and to feel and to cry out like, like you want us to in ways that you're teaching us. So our prayer right now is that your spirit would take this word and shape us by it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we need to catch a glimpse into the horrors of war. So they say we should watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan. We need to get in the mind of someone who's suicidal. So they say we should watch a series like 13 Reasons Why. We need to feel the weight of the Holocaust. So we should watch Schindler's List. Sometimes I question... The wisdom of that kind of thinking. War is a terrible tragedy. It's awful. One of the darkest byproducts of living in a fallen world. And there are some who are forced to bear exposure to war. But is that exposure something we should all seek? I think even worse. The kind of emotions a skilled director can elicit in, say, a one-hour episode have no real correspondence to the depth and complexity of emotion that come with actually living through something as terrible as suicide. But I worry that we do something unhealthy for our souls when we keep keep exposing them to little blips of emotion that are meant to, in some way, mimic the real thing. Just like repeated fake intimacies of pornography are leaving a generation of impotent men who struggle with true intimacy in marriage, I wonder if these artificial but emotional encounters with tragedy might be making us emotionally impotent. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't learn from history, nor am I saying that there shouldn't be some level of emotional reaction to atrocities. I'm simply cautious about the virtue of watching movies that attempt to help us relive or experience things that God has not brought into our lives. Now, I want you to take everything I've said just now with a grain of salt. These are just my own thoughts. I'm not expositing the Bible with those thoughts. And I'm as fallible as the next guy. But I mention them because our passage this morning actually invites us to see something terrible that none of us have experienced, it violates my rule. It's the exception of what I'm saying I'm cautious about. From my perspective, it's one of those rare occasions when we actually need to try to relive or grasp something that we haven't experienced. The passage isn't calling us to watch Saving Private Ryan, but it is telling us to slow down and really meditate on what it was like when God's wrath was poured out Against Jerusalem. You see that in verse 12? Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see. And then you see the same call again in verse 18. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. This section of the poem that runs from 12 to 19 is bookended with a call to look and see. It's an invitation to us to behold. It's telling us we need to slow down and consider just how awful God's judgment was upon Jerusalem. So what I want to do in this section, verses 12 to 19, is just move verse by verse with one specific goal in mind to catch a glimpse of how awful it is to be under god's judgment we'll start with verse 12 we've already commented on verse 12 i want to add that it's clear that what happened to jerusalem was done by the lord or yahweh himself it tells us that it happened do you see that at the end on the day of his fierce anger. You see that in verse 12? Now, the, the phrase the day is important because it's referencing a day that the prophets actually foretold that would come if Israel did not repent. I want to give you just one example of that. So keep your finger in lamentations because it's sometimes hard to find. But go up to Amos chapter 8, page 770 of our Pew Bibles. Amos chapter 8, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, I want you to just hear about the day from verses 9 to 13 of Amos 8, Amos 8, 9 to 13, and on that day declares the Lord Yahweh, I will make the sun go down at noon and will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord Yahweh. Well, I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but the hearing of the words of Yahweh. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, but they will not find it. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. I want to point that to you. That was something the prophets foretold this day coming because when we read of God's fierce anger, it's not something where he just kind of uncontrolled erupts. Now, um, even though my children are perfect, I occasionally have to discipline them. And occasionally, they're able to just push my button so... Making it sound like it's their fault, it's my own sinful heart, where I come unglued and I lose my temper. That might be one's image of fierce anger, but that is not what it's like when Yahweh shows his fierce anger. Because God's not one who is at the whim of his passions, he's not out of control. The day of his fierce anger is the day that he has declared. When He will pour out a judgment that He is warned of over and over and over again. And when He pours it out, He has deliberate purpose in doing so. So verse 12 helps us to see that Yahweh's brought this about. It's a, it's a day He's announced, a day of His fierce anger. Verse 13. Verse 13 gives us two images. First, of a fire. Like the fire that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, like the lake of fire in Revelation, but Lamentations emphasizes the intensely personal effect of it. See, God's fierce wrath isn't just, doesn't just result in physical agony. It's pain that goes down to your very bones. Our whole being is undone. We're left like The burned-out shell of a house after a five-alarm fire. Have you ever felt that way? The fire's gone down to the bones and consumed me. The second image in verse 13 is of hunting. People who are under God's wrath want to run from it. We want to escape. Jesus talks about a time when people run to the hills and want to die so they can escape what's happening. But here's the thing. Even when we think we're running away from God's wrath, we're running right into it. There lies a hidden net. The prey that thought he was running away from the hunter is actually in reality being chased by the hunter right into his trap. The net snaps. And we're caught. Like a thief in the night. In a moment. We think we've eluded God's wrath. And swap, We're caught. Don't play chess with God. You'll lose. Don't play games with the wrath of God. Don't think you can dodge it. There was an old spiritual that was uh, revived by a techno-pop artist named Moby. And it goes like this. You can run for a long time. Run on ducking and dodging. Run on, children, for a long time. Let me tell you, God Almighty going to cut you down. Israel thought she could run But eventually she ran into the snare. And she's utterly devastated. She's stunned, it says, faint all the day long. Now, verse 14. It's important because it helps us understand how God's wrath works. Basically, God takes our transgressions, our rebellion, all our disregard for his good ways, all our rejection of him. Every selfish or hate-filled or poisonous motive we've ever had. And he takes that and he fashions that into a yoke. And that's what he places on us. That's what God does when He shows us His wrath. You might remember we talked about this last week. God's wrath is basically giving us over to the path we've already chosen for ourselves. He lets us have what we stubbornly insisted on having. Now we're not going to turn there, but this is exactly what's described in Deuteronomy 7 and 8. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells Israel that He didn't choose them because they were mighty and big and impressive. In fact, He chose them that they were small and weak and all the good that was going to come to them was going to be clear that it was coming from Him and His goodness, not because of how impressive they were. But then in Deuteronomy 8, He warns them that if they forget Him and turn away from them, He'll leave them to be just like the other nations. So you see in Israel's history, Jerusalem plus God, and mighty Babylon is defeated. But Jerusalem minus God, Babylon wins every time. And that's what's happened. God says, you reject me, I take my hands off and give you over to the very things you've chosen. Jerusalem's persistent rebellion has been formed into a yoke and now they are forced to bear it and they get to see just how awful this world is when God is not in the picture for them. God's judgment is allowing us to experience the terrible path we've chosen undiluted and unmitigated by any of His grace or goodness. We choose to reject God, and we will one day know what a godless world looks like. And it's bloody, and it's lonely, and it's unjust. It's agony. There's verse 15. In verse 15, we watch as God brings down Jerusalem's most capable warriors. Jerusalem's strongest are no match for God. But then in the end, the end of the verse, the language becomes graphic. You have to understand what Babylon had just done to Jerusalem, right? They just come in, everyone's starving, no one has any strength left because the blockade Babylon has put on the city has cut off the food for a long time, maybe a year. People are dying of hunger in the streets. And then finally the Babylonians break through and they just kill and slaughter. And so the person writing this is looking out of the streets that are literally running with blood. And the imagery that comes to mind is it's like a wine press. God has stomped his foot on this city And now the red juices of judgment are flowing through the streets. It's grotesque imagery meant to be sobering. In verse 16, in response, Jerusalem weeps. The second line says, My eyes, it could be read, My eyes, my eyes run with tears. And they're like the widow's tears in that they're alone. None to comfort. All is lost. Now, at this point, there's an interlude. Verse 17. Overcome with emotion, the narrator steps in and describes the mourner. Her hands are stretched out. If it were a movie, she'd be like stretching out to us. She wants someone to come and comfort her. Someone to come and help her. But she's alone. There's none. She reaches out in vain. Her outstretched arms go unreciprocated, none to comfort. Her shame, her filthiness, her stained skirts are displayed for all. Her sin has come upon her own head, and as she weeps, she weeps alone. She longs for someone to comfort, but there is none. And verse 17 also serves as a bit of break, right? The, the voice of Jerusalem is calling out to us. Verse 17, we hear the narrator, but then verses 18 and 19, she calls out again to us. And in serving as a break, they serve to highlight verse 18, what comes right after. It's like a little arrow saying, okay, and we're doing a little break because what comes next is important. And there are two clear messages in verse 18. The first is that The justice that's being meted out, the discipline, is deserved. Right? It says Yahweh is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word. In other words, this is as it should be. But the other message is that there's a call to us again to see. All you peoples here see my suffering. We need to hear, we need to see, this is what justice looks like. God wants us, he wants us to see Israel's sorrow, that it's deserved, and how terrible it is. Why is that? Why does God put this in scripture? Why does he want us to see his justice against Jerusalem and what it's like? Now, that's a critical question we're going to return to in a moment. But before we return to it, we just need to see the end of this section, which is verse 19. All who loved her are gone. They've turned their back on her. All who led her, religiously and civically, they're dead. They were out in the streets looking for food. They're dying of hunger under Babylon's blockade. Imagine if it was so terrible that you were watching your pastors and your community leaders out in the streets looking for food and falling down and dying of starvation because they were so hungry. I mean, it's dreadful. Dreadful. So verses 12 to 19 are an invitation to us to look and see. So that's what we've done. We've looked and seen. I hope we've been given a little glimpse into how terrible God's wrath can be. But again, why? Why are all peoples invited to hear and see? Why is it so important that we see the wrath that came upon Israel? I think there are two reasons. The first we find in verses 20 to 22, and it's this. The day of judgment for Jerusalem is just a foretaste of the day of judgment that will come upon all. The day of judgment for Jerusalem is just a foretaste of the day of judgment that will come for us all. You might have noticed verses 20 to 22 are different than verses 12 to 19. Instead of addressing us, all peoples, they address God, Yahweh. This is a prayer to God. The plea might be the same. So he says to God, look, O Lord, you see that in verse 20. His stomach's churning. His heart is wrung, So he's expressing the same agony and asking Yahweh to see that. And he's clear again, like he was in verse 18, that it's deserved. He says, because I have been very rebellious. Nowhere in this prayer to God does Israel express a sense that God has been unjust towards her. She knows she's gotten what she deserves. But there is a gap in justice. And it's not that Israel has gotten something she doesn't deserve. It's that the other nations have yet to get what they deserve. You guys remember I read from Amos 8 how God promised a certain day He would bring judgment upon Jerusalem. Well, God has also promised a greater day A day of the Lord, when He'll bring judgment on all the nations. This day of the Lord is a dominant theme as you read through the Old Testament. Much more dominant than the the words against Jerusalem. God is going to bring judgment on the sinful nations for their rebellion. So as Jerusalem watches the horrible atrocities done to her by the Babylonians, watching them rape and pillage and slaughter, And as Jerusalem is watched, though she thought to be her friend's betrayer and turn her back on her in her time of need, even mocking her in her distress. As all this happens, Jerusalem is reminded that there's also a greater day of the Lord coming. Yes, we've received what we deserve. Yes, we've received what you announced for us. But when will they receive what they deserve? When will they receive the judgment you announced? Look at the end of verse 21. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Now, this, this isn't the prayer of some crusty, embittered partisan wanting their own personal deity to crush, to crush their enemies. This is a prayer to the Almighty God of the universe asking that He bring about the justice that He's promised. It's saying, We have sinned. We, have des- we deserve what we've gotten. They have sinned too. May they get what they deserve. The longing for justice, true, balancing the cosmic scale's justice, is a right longing. It is a Christian longing. And though it's true that those who have experienced oppression, those who have come face to face with the great evil of this world... Long for that justice with greater earnestness? It's something all of us should long for. So this is a prayer for justice, not a prayer for petty side-taking. But I also think it's something more. Given that it comes on the heels of the appeal for all peoples to look and see what happened, I think there's something more happening here. I think the same nations, the same all peoples that were invited to see how terrible Israel's suffering was are allowed to listen in to this prayer for justice. And all of a sudden, they hear that the justice God brought on Israel is a justice that they too receive. It's a justice that we too deserve. We need to slow down and consider just how terrible God's judgment is against Israel because it's a foretaste of the judgment we will know when Jesus returns and ushers in the great day of the Lord. Revelation 18 describes Babylon as her who was once queen who's become a widow. Just like Jerusalem in Lamentations 1:1. Revelation 19 describes Jesus coming to bring justice and it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You see the parallels? Just two examples, there are actually many more, of the wrath against Jerusalem being a prototype of the greater day of wrath to come against all the nations. Humanity is so naive. Look at the mess we're making. We bring each other heartache We destroy one another. We make a mess of the world. And yet we just glibly float along, thinking we're never going to face judgment for our rebellion. But God's prophets have been clear. And God has preserved their prophetic word for us to hear. Our rebellion will be judged. The day of the Lord will come. The results will be terrible. Take the agony of Jerusalem on the pages of Lamentations and then multiply that by eternity. God's telling us that's our plight because we've rebelled. Nobody in this room can say they have not been warned. We can choose to ignore God's warning, but we can't say he didn't warn us. So, the first reason we should behold the suffering of Jerusalem because it's a foretaste of the judgment we all deserve. But there's also a second reason. A reason that has everything to do with Handel's Messiah. In the mid-18th century, Charles Jenin handed his libretto that he'd written to his friend George Handel. Now, a libretto was a set of words, lyrics, really, that told a story. It was like a low-grade opera. So Jennings hands this story he's worked on, and he wants Handel to see it and write some music for it. Now, Handel at the time was going through a season where he was kind of a down-on-his-luck composer. Things weren't going his way. But he read the libretto and was so overwhelmed by it that he holed himself up in his study for 24 days and composed the entirety of what went on to become one of the most beloved and well-known classical works of all time, Handel's Messiah. What was it about Jenin's story, his libretto, that so compelled George Handel? Well, to begin with, it actually wasn't a story It was a string of Old Testament scriptures. But what was remarkable was how these Old Testament scriptures told the story of Jesus' birth, His death, and His resurrection. Jennings was showing that the Old Testament itself told the story of Jesus. And it was a remarkable achievement moving in its own right even more compelling when read as an answer to the critics of his day who are questioning whether the Bible really was inspired to begin with. And one of the arias in the middle of the libretto is from Lamentations 1.12. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. Amy sang it for us. Thanks for doing that, Amy. But here's the problem. The passage, one twelve that we've just studied isn't about Jesus. It's about Jerusalem's sorrow after Babylon crushed her. Yet Jennings has it sung about Jesus' death. Is Jennings right to do so? Is that a legitimate connection? I'm convinced it is. Here's why. We're here being invited to see a picture of God's wrath being poured out. The invitation is to see how terrible it is to be under God's wrath, especially when God's treasured possession is the one under His wrath. Now, if Jerusalem embodied that in a certain way, there is nobody who's embodied it better than Jesus himself. The Bible tells us that he drank the cup of God's wrath to the full. It says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could have his righteousness. It says that He was our propitiation. That means He propitiated God's wrath. He became the sacrifice that absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. He paid the price for our sin. So there is no better example to look to to see somebody who has a sorrow that no one else could know. When we see the intense agony of Jerusalem suffering, we see a foreshadowing of the suffering Jesus would endure on the cross. I talked about humanity and how we think too glibly about the wrath we deserve. If we think too glibly about the wrath we deserve, we necessarily also think too glibly of the wrath Jesus bore in our stead. I want to just read these verses about Jerusalem, but I want you to think of Jesus as I read these. Look and see. If there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which Yahweh inflicted on the day of His fierce anger, From on high He sent fire. Into my bones He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned, faint all the day long. Now we have to change one word here. Not my transgressions. Because Jesus didn't sin. The yoke that was fastened on Him was our transgressions. Your transgressions were bound into a yoke By his hands they were fastened together and they were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I can't withstand. Look at verse 16. For these things I weep. My eyes, my eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. When Jesus was drinking the dregs of the cup of God's wrath, the sky went dark. He cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All his friends betrayed him, turned their back on him. He had none to comfort. He was widow Israel. He had to bear the agonizing consequence of sin alone. The eternal Son of God forsaken by the Father so that He could bear what we deserve. His bones burned hot under the Father's wrath so that our bones would not have to burn. He bore the yoke of our transgressions Heaped upon Him all the sins of humanity so that we would not have to bear that yoke. This is what Jesus did for us. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto His sorrow. If verses 12 to 19 show us what it's like to be under God's wrath, and verses 20 to 22 remind us that we will likewise be under God's wrath, wrath, the rest of the Bible teaches us that Jesus bore that wrath in our stead. And all we are called to do is to run to Him, to find our refuge in Him, to entrust ourselves to Him, to place our whole faith in Him. If we do, God's whole wrath against us is averted. We do need to slow down and consider God's wrath. We need to see what it is that our sins deserve. And we need to see what our Savior endured for us. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in our day and age, we almost never slow down and think about wrath, we never think about what we deserve because of our rebellion. We're just told to think we're great, think good thoughts about ourselves, believe in ourselves, and everything will be okay with the world. What a lie. So you've appointed for us to stop now and consider a really weighty topic, but one that's important. Thank you for that. Help us to really slow down and consider. Help us to grasp all the way to wrath.